there's a food renaissance going on with an explosion of amount of categories and around room for different brands, and it can't be contained within the grocery store. Welcome to The Irresistible Factor, a podcast where I talk to founders and investors and retailers about what it takes to launch successful brands, from developing a compelling proposition and brand identity, to raising capital, to getting distribution, and more. My name is Christy Bridges, and I'm a marketing expert with tons of experience and a true love for all things health and wellness. Welcome, everyone, to today's episode of The Irresistible Factor. I am very, very thrilled and honored to have two awesome guests today. So today we're talking to Al Sambar, who is the general partner at XRC Labs. And we're talking to Christopher Dane, who you might already know because he was just touting his brand on Shark Tank, and he is the CEO and co-founder of Proper Good. So welcome to both of you. Thank you so much for joining me today. Wonderful. It'll be a fun one. Yeah, I think our listeners are in for a treat. I always love it when we can when we can have people who are actually working together to build a brand. And so I'm I'm excited to kind of give that perspective that you guys have, which is very different than just talking to a founder or just talking to someone who's in the private equity space. So first, I'm just going to ask you both to introduce yourselves and just talk a little bit about how you got to where you are with Christopher, your brand first, and then Al, if you could talk a little bit after that about um, your firm, that would be really awesome. Wonderful. Yeah, happy to. No, th- thanks for having us. This is going to be a, a fun conversation for sure. So the, the quick story on mind is uh, you know, I grew up in the UK and, and studied finance and banking there before making my way to the US, where I landed in Bozeman, Montana. I lived there for a few years where we started our first food brand. So I've always been in food and beverage, honestly, always in consumer packaged goods. Ran that for about five years. I then stepped away to do my MBA. During that whole process, you know, did what most people do and explore options and realized, honestly, I loved food and beverage. I loved what I was doing before. So we kind of came up with a, a new idea in the space. And that was the birth of Proper Good. And Proper Good now is about 18 months old or so. So still pretty new, but things are moving quickly. And yeah, all in on the natural food space. Can you talk a little bit before we move to Al about what, yeah. what Proper Good makes? And 18 months is is amazing because, I mean, you started your brand in the middle of the pandemic, really. Or right at the beginning of it. So I'm curious to hear a little bit about that too. But first, let's just tell everyone what Proper Good is in case they don't know. Sure. So Proper Good, essentially the tagline is we make 90 second meals for busy people. So everything we do is shelf stable, meaning no fridge needed. So you can take to work, you can stock up the pantry, you can take traveling. And the idea is you've got a a 90 second meal whenever you need it, whether that's ketogenic needs, uh, plant-based needs, gluten-free needs, across breakfast, lunch, and dinner from oatmeals to soups to chilies. They see as premium 90-second meals as you're ever going to get. Awesome. And Al, would you give us a little background? Sure, sure. It's nice to meet everybody. I am Al Sambar. I'm a general partner at XRC Labs. What XRC Labs is, is a venture capital group. We have an accelerator called XRC Labs, which we started back in 2015. And we've got some follow-on funds that do venture investing in those startups as they grow and are more successful coming out of that. And our areas are consumer products and retail. So anything related to the consumer, we are typically first money investors. We like to identify talent and great startups early and then help them grow. And so we're right there with Chris starting up in the beginning of COVID. So that that was exciting for us. And food is one of our core segments. We have about five different segments we really like and we particularly like food. 
And what, what's the size of the sweet spot for you guys from a brand size perspective? Is it really truly like the very first round of funding or? We get a range. So we'll take, we are often in there with the earliest angels. I myself have a 15 plus year background as an angel investor. So we tend to come in there for the ones that are coming in our accelerators. Pre-seed, they might, we love what they're doing. We think they're going to be able to demonstrate product market fit. And as they do that, then we stay with them through their seed and their Series A with some other funds. Or we have an opportunity fund and another fund called our brand capital fund that specifically supports brands. Okay, awesome. So that's really interesting. And you guys obviously have this relationship already, which is why we're talking together. Yeah, Chris, can you talk a little bit about how you guys got together and what your need was at the time and just a little bit about the relationship and how it's helping proper good? Yeah, certainly. So I think I was spot on there in that first money in, uh, I believe that XRC invested alongside our, our very earliest investors right, right at the start of the company. You know, we we started essentially the first month of 2020 and we launched in April, right? As you said, as the pandemic was kind of really coming into full swing in terms of lockdown yeah. and XRC was right in there at the beginning of, with our first investors there. So you know, for us, you know, the retail and CPG space is, is really challenging, right? As a small company, it's very resource intensive. It can be very relationship based. So we yeah. really look to partner with the right people early on. And that's um, very much some relevant individual angel investors in the space, you know, founders of other brands and similar, as well as, you know, smaller funds and accelerators such as XRC. They were able to get in right away. You know, we were pre-revenue at the time. We were pre-launch, but they, they saw an idea and they obviously liked us as people. So really got involved right from day one in terms of channel strategy, you know, how we're going to go about fundraising and so forth. It's interesting that you said they really liked us as people. I'm curious to hear from you, Al, how important is that to you guys when you think about getting involved, especially at such an early stage when there is no proof that it's going to work? Well, it's true. So we we basically, as a venture fund, look at the market, particularly where we think fundamental consumer behavior is changing. And we think that Food is one of those areas of really foundational change in consumer behavior. That's why we like it as a category. But then when we look for individual portfolio companies to invest in, our first choice is around the quality of founders. So we really love his background. We love that he knew the industry and he was already hitting it and understood what was happening in the industry. When he starts to talk about his brand and tells you how he rapidly changes his recipe ingredients and how he built a supply chain for this product company that looks very unlike any kind of food company that historically existed. We really liked it. So we thought he had a great insight of where the industry was going and the experience to be able to pull it off. So we, our primary criteria on the earliest companies pre-revenue is about the founders. Yeah, I would imagine it would be. Talk about the insight, Chris. I mean, what did you see as an opportunity when you decided to start this brand. And I, I feel like COVID probably amplified what you saw, but I want to hear what you, you saw at the beginning. Yeah. So the, the very, very early stages, as I said, I'd been in food for about four or six years or so before. So all the trade shows, all the distributor shows, I was very familiar with the industry and, and how this works as a new brand. What Al alluded to, a lot of those challenges People spend a lot of time, a lot of money on product development. You can spend a year, two years, obviously, designing and launching into retail. And you don't really have a lot of proof of concept at that stage, right? There's very much a big leap of faith. So I wanted right early on to design a company that did the opposite, right? It's going to be very nimble. We're going to launch new products very rapidly. We're going to iterate with consumer feedback. 
We're going to run in a very nimble way, which is not common in, in food and beverage. And how do we apply that in practice? So we looked across the markets, different ideas of everything from beverages to snacks to, to sleep aids. And we landed on an area that was actually very personal to me in that I was trying ketogenic diets. I was trying plant-based diets. And there were a lot of snacking options available, right? You need a gluten-free snack or a paleo snack. There's a million options. But for meals, it was really hard. I'd, I'd have all these snack options during the day or a, a beverage or something like that. But for dinner, I was still cooking from scratch. The only mm-hmm. options that existed were very expensive frozen meal delivery, which has other challenges, obviously, with packaging and Absolutely. dry ice. So there were just no easy 90-second meals for, for diet specifics. And initially, to me personally, I meant keto. But as you look at the market, as I said, gluten-free, dairy-free, plant-based. And that was really the insight. So how can we make very easy 90-second meals specifically for you know functional needs, dietary needs, and lifestyle needs and apply that with a business model that is very different to most food and beverage? So that was the initial insight. And obviously, since then, that's grown really to be wider, better few meals. You know, we do a lot for nurses, a lot for truck drivers, anyone that is busy and needs a quick meal, not necessarily in, in quite as deep in the lifestyles as initially planned, but really just better for you, easy meals. Are the dietary things that you thought were that were going to be a big part of the brand, are they still part of it or is it not as important as you thought it was going to be? Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting thought. So yes is the answer, right? If you go to the website, you'll see you can filter by lifestyles. That's certainly a big piece of what we do. But initially, I thought it would be quite polarized, right? People would come, let's say you come in with a vegan idea, you're going to live in that kind of vegan area of the website. And that over time has just proven to be less true. Honestly, a lot of people will change through the seasons, right? Maybe you're trying to be healthier in January or healthier for beach body season. But other times of the year, you don't really care and you're more interested in just whatever's available. So we really found consumers are pretty fluid with their lifestyles. So we try to just cater to that as opposed to be very lifestyle specific. And can you talk about one other thing that's very interesting? I know that you started this brand with your sister, and I think that's interesting. I haven't talked to anyone <laughs> who's done that with a sibling. So can you just talk a little bit about that and how that's kind of going for you guys? Yeah, so we are, I would say, very fortunate in a, in a very small group of We've been working together on projects since we were teenagers. Growing up, my parents would build houses and we'd always kind of be together on projects with them. And we had a small t-shirt business, a small concert business. <laughs> when we and when I say small, I mean, you know, as small as you can imagine as teenagers, but but nonetheless, just working together on things. We had complementary skill sets, we get along, we have the same overall beliefs and work ethic. So I'd say very, very lucky. I know sibling founder relationships can go very wrong and they can also go very right. And we're very lucky to be on that side of things. But yeah, we work literally 24-7 together. Wow. So are you both living in Austin? Actually, so yeah, mostly Zoom right now. So she is actually, we were in Montana together. Oh, I wow. then moved to Austin. She is currently on her way to Austin, but but COVID put about a nine-month kind of a delay on that. Wow. Wow. Interesting. So I want to get to the relationship from the investment perspective, but can you talk just for one more minute about what it was like to launch this brand as COVID was just ramping up? Yeah, of course. It's so literally we went to market with just four items. The idea was, you know, we're we're really positioned as a meals company, so breakfast, lunch, and dinner. But nonetheless, we're going to launch to market just with four soup items. Was the plan just to see do people want premium shelf stable meals? Let's test a lot of our ideas. And we quite literally turned on the website on the 1st of April 2020, which at least where I was living at the time was quite literally the same week as we went into a lockdown. So it was crazy to say the least. 
what was interesting in that yeah there's there's silver linings to everything obviously from a business point of view a lot of people started shopping online as, as yeah. you've obviously seen the the e-commerce food adoption through covid was significant so we had i would say an easier time building initial awareness because of covid but also on the flip side supply chains travel meetings all the rest of it was obviously thrown for a, a real loop for at least six months so mm-hmm. yeah it was quite chaotic to turn a website on and try to run a remote warehouse as we're going into lockdown so not easy by any means but we, we pulled it off somehow well not only did you pull it off but you're still around and you got through probably the worst time in yep. history at least in recent history so kudos to you guys because Thank you. Could have gone a completely like you've already dealt with one of the biggest challenges, hopefully, that you'll ever have to deal with as a brand. So that's pretty incredible way to start. I mean, everything else is going to feel like that's easy. (laughs) (laughs) So, Al, can you talk about what you guys generally look for aside from really strong founders? What kind of brands are you interested in right now? And how do these guys fit into that? So, good question. We are pretty open to a lot of categories. We basically think if you were to take a look at your grocery store today, your historic grocery or mass retail, look down those aisles, there's opportunity in every aisle, really. And who would have thought soup, which is goes back to the 60s and 70s, looks all the, you know, you could almost see the same brands on that aisle. There's a food renaissance going on with an explosion of amount of categories and around it room for different brands, and it can't be contained within the grocery store. So when we look at at an emergent brand, and I'll just pick on food, but we think the same thing in beauty and skin and consumer goods, we look for ones, we we think about direct to retail. I mean, we like to see a brand that's starting early, growing as a direct channel, understanding, you know, the idea that he can identify a keto customer or plant-based customer, they can find it. We also love an ability of the product company to rapidly test and learn. So his ability to say in one week, hey, let's try a little bit more turmeric or a little bit more cumin and understand immediately how his customer reacts to that and then be able to modify that in the supply chain. That's that's a digital first sort of mindset and how he's built his company, how he marketed his company. And actually his first brands and volume will all be digital first, digital consumer channels. And then as it gets scale, then we can help that using our relationships and his retailers will come into him to try and figure out how to bring that, that love through, through their retail distribution channels. So we, we really like that. So the business model matters a whole lot to us. Mm-hmm. I heard talk of this technology. So Chris, can you talk about that? Because it sounds really interesting. How are you doing that so quickly? And talk about why and how it's working. Yeah, sure. So it's it honestly comes from my five or six years of of knowing how to do it very much the other way, right? There's most most food companies, as I'm sure you're aware, you you develop products, maybe you have different packaging for food service, you have different packaging for yep. retail, different suppliers, different vendors, different everything. So we basically said with proper good, we want to focus on the food quality itself. We want to focus on obviously the brand, the marketing, the price point, that type of thing. But we naturally need the supply chain to be 10 times simpler than, than it was at the previous company, and it is it most. So it's less on a technology side with the actual supply chain itself. It's really in the way we've kind of built a very nuanced platform. So by that, I mean, we see ourselves as much a data company as a food company. So as mm-hmm. Al said, you know, whether you identify as a plant-based customer, where you are, what you buy, 
needs, whether it's health or just dietary preference, like we know all of this right from day one with you. So we can have a very customized experience, meaning, you know, let's say we're going to launch a new product that's a new plant-based item. I can look at our most relevant plant-based customers for this, say, dietary segment. We would send them literally 200 samples, right? We would make 200 samples. We go back and forth. We iterate, we survey. So everything, honestly, pre-launch reduces that risk tremendously so it's really bringing customers in instead of seeing them as customers as almost an arm of the business they really Mm -hmm. are in the business right we have hundreds of our best customers in private slack groups where we communicate pre-ideas early labels early ingredient ideas to really bring them into the process so when we launch most of the risk is pretty much mitigated right so it's really less on a you know a specific piece of technology more thinking about how we design a supply chain involving customers and involving the product way before we launch the product and then when you're in market do you continue to do that kind of testing or is it really pre-launch yes continuously actually so we do more surveys than i believe anyone else does (laughs) just because it's such direct feedback right we have tens of thousands of customers that that frankly love to have input right they love to send photos they love to have ideas well one quick example which is always fun to share is just we launched a product that went through the process i just described that i thought was good two months in we realized people were buying it but they weren't rebuying it and that obviously as a ddc company you have this data so it's literally red flagged on the back end that the repeat purchase for this item is nowhere near the repeat purchase for other items yeah and we go down that process we emailed hundreds of people and and we figured out there's a herb time is very polarizing people either love it as i do and you notice it as just a normal flavor or if you don't like it it ruins the entire dinner it'll taste bitter it'll taste horrible so we went down that process. Obviously, from start to finish, that entire thing took about six weeks. We removed time, we increased the creaminess and relaunched the product. Whereas in a retail environment from day one, that is virtually impossible, impossible. at least in my experience. So we really use direct consumer to iterate, learn and perfect. Then with the idea of moving those successful items into retail, again, really with the risks significantly reduced. So that's interesting on a couple of levels. My first question is, did it work? Did it change the repeat purchase on that product or do you not know yet? Yeah, oh, dramatically. Yeah, this was about nine months ago, this example. So yes, awesome. 100%. Amazing. Yep. And that must be, I mean, I'm sure it's important from an investment standpoint and who's going to fund your growth. But also when you go to retailers, what a great story that is. Like totally. that's a really compelling story. That's different than anything I've heard anybody be able to tell. So you've got, not only do you have data, like data, lots of people get data and I work in data and I think it's incredibly valuable, but you have something that already says, not only have we tried this with our consumers, we've iterated with them and we know that this is better than, than other things. So that's really cool. That must be very compelling from a distribution standpoint. Definitely. And honestly, we're just starting that process and that'll be a big piece that Alan, that will be you know, very much involved in given their retail connections. But as you said, now we're we're not, you know, a little bit of data on a bit of enjoyment. We now have four or five iterations on a core product, thousands of reviews, and we get to the point where, you know, we can truly say hand on heart, the chances that people don't enjoy this item are virtually zero, right? Because we've gone through that proof of concept. That's pretty amazing. How many products do you have right now? 
Yeah, so we've gone from zero and then four at launch. We now have 18 products in oh, wow. about you know, 14 months. And that's across breakfast, lunch, and dinner. So oatmeal, soups, chilies, and bone broths. But again, the whole point of our process is a lot of these items are produced just a thousand units at a time, right? Mm-hmm. And the idea is they don't all have to succeed. And I would actually say if they do all succeed, we may have done something wrong. But the whole point is failure is built into this idea, right? If we have a nice idea, we don't have to debate and do six months of research whether it's a good idea. We can make it next week. We can sell it for a few customers and we can see what happens. So it's yeah. very, very nimble and, and quick to learn. That's so interesting. I mean, that makes it seem so different than a lot of other things that I've been talking about. So how are you guys going to work together to get these guys into retail? Yeah, so it's tricky. What he just described, this idea of starting out as a food company in digital Think about as he grows, he's going to have to attract more investors and more distribution channels. So he's got all the complexity of a digitally native direct-to-consumer company where he's got to demonstrate CAC and LTV yield and all these metrics that direct-to-consumer investors care about. And now we're going to transition this business into retail. And all of a sudden, you've got retail sell-through and shelf space and all these other kinds of metrics, a whole different class or way of looking at it. So, and he's sort of in the in-between frame right now. So one is our first priority, the first thing we wanted to see when he first came to us, he just had soups. And as he described, it was the springtime and we were going into the summer and who's going to buy soups, hot soup in the middle of the summer. So first was, let's get some more products launched. Let's get to the hit all of the meals of the day. So him opening up oatmeal and chilies. Now you've got this being able to be eaten from breakfast through dinner. And so we still want to see that expansion. We Now the next part is starting to penetrate into retail and demonstrate some of those numbers. So he's gotten great numbers in direct. Yeah. Part of why he was successful in Shark Tank, you could see those numbers. But even as direct's changing, his brand's starting to be built. So there's challenges in direct with cost of customer acquisition, given changes in Apple and some of these other things that you've got to consider. And he's been able to weather a lot of those. So for us, the next steps are continuing to perform well on digital, helping him expand into other channels as well. You know, I one of the things I always talk about with people who've been on Shark Tank is the fact that regardless of whether you get funded, which of course it's amazing that you did, you have no choice but to get your brand story so tight and make sure that you are so compellingly talking about it. I love that about that platform because. I think a lot of challenges that I've seen, and maybe you have too, Al, because you've been exposed to so many brands, a lot of founders are, I don't want to say all over the place, but sort of like they think somebody wants to hear something and they talk about it that way. And then they think somebody else, like a retailer wants to hear a different story. And I think what's cool about Shark Tank, and I'd love to hear your take on this, Christopher, is that you have to have a tight story. You have to be consistent because you're going to get challenged all over the place. And so I wonder, did that help you? Did you already feel like you had that before you went on there? Really interesting way to look at it. Honestly, I haven't looked at it like that before. And that that makes a lot of sense in that, yes, is the answer, right? The, obviously, the application for Shark Tank is significant. But then when you go through with the producers and the, and the pre-obviously mm-hmm. filming stuff, you are continuously whitting it down to A, what makes sense for the sharks because they're obviously going to see you for the first time, but also for the viewer at home. So it's literally within that 90 seconds, as you said, I could talk about anything from the lifestyles to the convenience to the brand. I could talk about anything for an hour 
what's most interesting and most compelling in 90 seconds, both for investors and consumers, is not an easy challenge, actually. No. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot of money to help brands yeah. with that challenge, like years yeah. of work and research. And you guys have to really get it together on your own, which I think is it's sort of like Kickstarter, too. I mean, I think you have to do sure. the same thing there, but you're not getting challenged the way you are when you get questioned and grilled by those guys. Yes. Definitely. And I think you did a great job because I knew exactly what your brand was when you were done with that. And I thought it was really interesting. And I thought the way you presented it was very compelling. Yeah, no, I mean, it was, it was really well done. And I'm curious about your audiences because I think I remember you talking about being able to, I know it's shelf stable. Does it have to be heated up? Could you just eat it? Sure. Yeah, no, that's another interesting thought. So yes, is again, the short answer that you can eat it cold. So the way it works is Everything is shelf stable, meaning no fridge needed for about an eight month shelf life, right? So okay. we're, we're not going to last for five years. It's not that sort of Armageddon bunker food, but it's also not a six week shelf life, which obviously brings challenges to distribution and, and things yeah. like that. So yeah. we're kind of right in that sweet spot where it enables great distribution channels without, you know, we don't have to add, we don't add any chemicals, any preservatives, any colors, the ingredients list read literally as if you made it yourself. So we've really hit a sweet spot in the middle there. But what that's done is open up a lot of different usage occasions. So for example, nurses is a really big one for us, right? They're crazy busy, long shifts, often a five minute break with just a microwave and a coffee pot in the break room. Our meals are literally perfect for that, right? You can keep it in your backpack the whole day and it's ready instantly. And the same with truck drivers. You know, a lot of the US is unfortunately full of food deserts, right? There's just not good healthy options on the road. So we do a lot with truck drivers that Again, they have either a microwave in, in the truck or at a truck stop, there's obviously microwaves. So again, just 90-second meals where other options just aren't available. So lots of really interesting use cases. And, mm. and outside of that, plenty of college students and plenty of 70-year-olds trying to watch their sugar intake. So a really broad usage occasion. I was just going to say, having just traveled last weekend, I travel on a regular basis, at least I did until COVID, but I was reminded last weekend about how abysmal the airport choices are and how you just cannot get anything that's good for you. You just can't. Like you can get an apple, but that's pretty much it. Sure. Everything else is like, we get all these protein bars and stuff, which you know aren't really good for you. And then if you try to eat at any of the restaurants, you know, that's not good for you. And then you get on the plane and they give you cookies or one of those strufels. And it's just like, Really? Yep, a hundred percent. Yep, I've had the experience. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it seems like that would be a great place to to be able to mm-hmm. pick up something like that for a travel. So that's really awesome. And I think it's interesting that you did you think about those audiences when you were creating, or did it just so happen to work out that way, like nurses, truck drivers? Yeah, I'd, I'd love to say we had all that planned out, but definitely not <laughs> is, is the answer there. So. I think what, what Al said earlier was actually spot on in terms of the way the grocery store tends to work. And if you go through all the categories, right, you've often got the lower end item, the mid end items, the higher end items, the natural items. Whereas we found that center store with, with soups and similar items just did not exist. There was not a premium category mm-hmm. in that set. So we mm-hmm. kind of started more that I think there's opportunity for that premium set. Not necessarily that I think this set will apply to X, Y, Z. Um, but that's kind of been learned over time. Yeah. I want to ask you both the same question and it's, you could talk about yours, Chris, in terms of your brand. And then Al, if you want to just talk about it any way you want in general terms, what's the biggest challenge for you guys right now? You want to start Al? Well, I'll let you talk about yours. I will say in general, when we look at food brands, we see 
What's great right now, let me start with what's great. The ability to put unique ingredients and efficiently bring it to a consumer, we couldn't have done this 10 years ago. To have so many hyper-specialized products and, and categories within it for different taste profiles or nutrition profiles. We've got other startups in food is medicine, starting yeah. health outcomes based on eating this food because of your own personal health or genetic condition. And I, I, how could I have shoved that through last decade's supply chain? I couldn't have done it. Mm-hmm. So I think we're kind of in this magic period of things opening up. And, and frankly, COVID forcing all the retailers to really embrace click and collect and build distribution channels where I can have my favorite subscriptions and these food that just physically couldn't fit on the shelf available for you to get. Like, I think we're in this period of, of being able to really radically improve the quality of food that's available. And we like that. We see that. Now, that's a challenge because to be able to be good at it, we do think these brands, these founders have to be good at direct. They have to be good at setting up a direct business first, building a hardcore of customers that love them and advocate for them and and bring other customers to them because you can't survive if you can't generate that organic traffic and be really good at at direct business first. Uh, Even though you're in a category in food that is not historically a direct business. And then how, before we get to Chris's answer, how important is it? Like this feels like a very different brand to me. This feels like a unique proposition for real. There are so many food brands and startups that are, I wouldn't say me too's, but that don't have something that's super, super unique. What, what's your feeling on that? I mean, no, it's, it's true. We feel that way. We, we are hesitant in our own investment as I'm just speaking as an investor here, yeah. our own investment hypotheses is to invest in disruptive brands. So this idea, meaning we don't really, we see a lot of what we call next best widget. Hey, here's a soup. Yeah. We're taking out some salt. Here's some ingredients, but they're not natural. I've replaced it with some natural. What we want to see is something that fundamentally changes the way we think about an entire category. And if that founder is right, if we can help them and that they prove that they're right, they change the way all soup will be done or all shelf-stable meals will be done in the future. It's going to be hard to compete with his model as it gets to scale if you don't have a model that can do the kinds of agility he's talked about. So it would fundamentally disrupt the product category. So that's how we think about it. Not that some of those other Me Too's or Next Better widgets can't be good in the short term, but for us as really early investors, we look for the disruptive ones. Yeah. So your turn, Chris, what's your biggest challenge? Yeah, for sure. It's funny. I mirror a lot of things answered, obviously, on just supply chain things and, and general sort of market dynamics. It's just food, food and beverage just is challenging, right? It's particularly capital intensive. You've got so many different things going on across everything from production to sales to branding and marketing. These are not these are not simple, easy businesses to run. But in terms of nailing down the main thing for us right now, I'd say we've got to a stage where we feel we've got proven products, you know, thousands of reviews. We're doing great repeat business. But still, just scaling to, you know, there's 300 plus million people in the US across a very big landscape, building awareness cost effectively, getting those consumers to think about you on a daily, weekly, monthly basis. That's really challenging, right? Even even if you love a product, you're busy, right? It's not going to be front of mind every two minutes. So whether we're engaging you through a subscription or through a text message or through a referral program to your family or, or something like that. That's really where the things we're trying to solve at the moment of 
We know people love it. We know they want it. How do you scale that, obviously, without spending enormous amounts of money on traditional marketing? Yeah. Um, so that, that's number one. And I'm sure that's a, a familiar problem for most brands because it's just it's just a challenging problem, honestly. Yeah. And I think as you get into retail, it gets even harder because the expectation yep. on how fast you're going to be able to move product through really relies on you finding ways to drive people to those stores. And I think the patience of the stores for brands to build is definitely not what it used to be. So you got to prove yourself pretty quickly, I would say. So yeah, that's interesting. That's an interesting one. You just said something that may resonate with me, this thing about waiting for the stores. So part of the renaissance, I think, is the change in supply chain. So if you you can think about it, uh, whether it's Postmates or GoPuff or Gorillas or all these new services that can allow you to get these products. Yeah. I live on the West Coast. We've got like good eggs and some of these really yeah. great ways to discover these food communities, whether it's it's in, in different food specialties that I might care about, whether it's plant or keto. And so that all of a sudden creates this exploding distribution channel for these food companies that didn't exist. Then you look in the middle of the supply chain, you've got innovators like Pod Foods, which is sort of completely reinventing the distribution mm-hmm. in part of it, how distributors can buy from warehouses to get it in these lower quantities through these channels. So we're fundamentally rethinking the entire national supply chain here in the U.S. that will allow more and more of these food companies that can rapidly iterate and create unique products to get their stuff to market. That, that's It's not just the food companies, it's the entire supply chain infrastructure is really innovating here right now. Yeah, interesting. I'm curious to know, Chris, what you think your biggest success to date is. I know that sometimes when you're a founder and you're challenged all the time, you stop, you forget to sort of notice all the things that are going right. So just wondering what you feel like you've done best so far. Yeah, it's, it's funny you say that. So definitely as a founder, I know my previous business was literally one foot in front of the other, right? And suddenly you're yeah. like, years have gone past. Or we just, we've yes. just been doing. We haven't necessarily been strategizing or thinking. We've just literally been doing. And that gave, that was what I actually went a lot with. The reason for my MBA was that, right? Take the time to reflect and think and, and strategize. But now trying to do that here with, with proper good is honestly the number one thing comes back to what Al just said about there were a lot of not me too product, but what I'd call incremental growth, right? We could have yes. certainly picked a category, right? Nut butter, jerky, snack bars, you name it, and tweaked a couple of the ingredients and redid the label. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just obviously a very different way of developing a business where a proper good, we made quite a lofty bet of okay. people want to buy premium price shelf-stable meals. That That is not a category that exists in the United States. We think they're going to do it in a pouch format. We think they're going to do it in a transparent pouch format where you can see the food, which again is not common at all in the United States. So we had a lot of pushback early on of, you really think someone wants to buy shelf-stable $7 soup in a transparent pouch? And you know, frankly, that, that's fair pushback, right? That, that's yeah. a fair, fair concern. So I really feel like you know, now a year and a half in with so much data, with so many you know, hundreds of thousands of meals sold, We've really got to the stage where I feel like that bet has really paid off. And I think we were right about that as a, as a general concept. And that's put us well ahead of the game. In tandem with all the lean supply chain and iteration, we're really now leading a category that doesn't exist. And that has, you know, that that's a risk that's paid off. So that's definitely what we're most proud about and where I think we've made the most strides. Amazing. I want to ask you each one more question. I, I don't want to take up too much of your time, but this is so fantastic. I think there's it's so inspiring to hear you talk about this because you really are doing something very different 
not just from a product perspective, but just how you're going to market. And I I think that's interesting. I want to ask you each to give a good piece of advice to someone who is either early in the very early stages or potentially struggling with some of the things that you guys know are issues for CPG startups. Big question. Well, you've given a lot of great advice already, but I just think if you had to tell somebody one thing that you wish you had done differently or one thing to watch out for, what would it be? I'll go first. I'll jump in in that I would say, I've said this before, so anyone's heard this, apologies, but I think the number one thing, especially food, beverage, and CPG in general, in my mind, is people tend to over-focus or over-index on the things that are enjoyable, right? The brand, the product, the way it looks, all the kind of fun things that founders really enjoy, and, and I enjoy just as much. But what really makes the business work is actually a lot of the stuff we've talked about today, right? Rethinking supply chain, rethinking cash flow, rethinking all the things that actually make the business work. So with the people I help, we tried to focus on as much effort and time and consideration and honestly excitement for the boring stuff as you mm-hmm. do have for the exciting stuff. And that really builds two sides of the coin, which if the product takes off, you now have a business that can actually support that. And so, yeah, focus on the boring stuff is, is tends to be the advice I give. That's a good one. I haven't heard that. I've heard a lot of things and I haven't heard that. And I, I'm going to take your advice too, because I feel the same <laughs> way. Sometimes I'm just like, oh no, I don't want to look at that PL. Exactly. I just exactly. want to go to a good <laughs> meeting and make an awesome presentation or come up with a for great sure. strategy for somebody. But yeah, I get it. That's good nice. advice. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I'll close. I guess, so number one, I, I'm sure I've been wrong a lot. I'm sure I passed on companies applying to our fund that have gone on to be successful. So everybody's got, I mean, at the end of the day, it's about great founders with a stubborn chip on their shoulder solving (laughs) that are worth solving. So if I give any advice, I see the thing that disappoints me most is I see pitches solving problems that aren't big enough. From my point of view, I want to help. And I think a lot of investors want to help people trying to solve real problems and are willing to take risks doing it. So, you know, if you're going to put so much of your heart into a startup, do it for something that's really worth it in the end. Solve a problem or something. That is, I guess, the most disappointing when I see a, an, an incremental thing that is really about making you money as opposed to changing the world a little bit. Interesting. And it probably won't make you as much money as you think it will if it's just a little incremental thing either, unless you get lucky. There's great founders all over the place. But the, yes, the, there the, definitely the, are. Fact, the ones that have been wildly successful from my investment side, it's the ones that just have this huge chip because they feel a real passion around changing something around the world around them. Yeah. And that, uh, very becoming. It's very easy to be attracted to those folks. And yeah. What are some of your favorites, Al, that you've worked with that went on to be really successful? Oh man, we, I love, so some of our, I think when we started in 2015, some of our early companies like Billy was early. I think uh, Chris knows the founders of Billy, which is a women's razor company in CPG. Mm-hmm. Yep. And they just early were really upset that a woman's razor <laughs> was 30% more than the same razor from a man because it was being sold to women. She called it the big tax and she said, I just have to solve that. And then they built a company because they wanted that one thing is so wrong and could feel a little bit of zealot in the founder team. And it was a great founder team. They've had terrific success and they've added all these other products. But at the heart of it was something that just really pissed them off. 
<laughs> and I love that. that. That's you want to get behind those companies. Awesome. That's so cool. Well, I want to just say thank you to both of you because this is so great. I love the back and forth. I love hearing both sides of the story. I think that you both have had such great advice for my listeners. So thank you very much. I can't wait to see what happens with you, Chris, and Proper Good because I love the proposition. I think what you're doing is really cool and I can't wait to get my hands on some. So that's going to be my next step. Wonderful. It's very kind. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you guys. Thank you, Christy. Nice to talk. Thank you for listening to The Irresistible Factor. I'm Christy Bridges, and I can't wait to see you next Wednesday.